the feast of unleavened bread, the celebration of the deliverance of the children of Israel meant in Egypt and into the promises of God is also an anticipation of the deliverance by God of all people from the enslavement of sin and into the promise of everlasting life. It was for freedom, Galatians 5.1 says, that Christ set us free. In other words, the whole reason that God sent a Savior, a Messiah, a Mashiach, an anointed one, appointed to deliver his people is because God wants you and I to be free. Now, you might feel pretty free today. Remember that old song from Pinocchio, I Got No Strings On Me? You might think, I've got no chains on me. But the chains that bind us in the spiritual realm the things of emotion, of anxiety, of frustration, of addiction, the things of broken relationship and broken bodies, broken homes, broken minds, broken promises and broken covenants and broken vows. It's even a broken bank. Maybe you're broke. All of those things bind us. They hold us. They chain us. And they're not just the problems of a petty world. They are also the tools of a spiritual adversary. There is in the spirit realm a despot more horrible than Pharaoh himself in the story of the Exodus. A ruler who desires to enslave you and I because he's empowered by our enslavement. Because he derives his pleasure, his worth, his sense of empowerment from seeing you and I under the heel of his foot. But from the beginning, it was not so. The Lord said all the way back in Genesis 3 to that, that crafty serpent, Satan, that though there would be enmity between him and us, he would bruise our heel, but we would crush his head. And the very foot that crushed the head of Satan is the very hand that freed the children of Israel. It's none other than the Lord who sets us free. And the Lord has sent to us a savior. You know, that's what Jesus means. It means salvation comes from the name, from Yahweh, from the I am, from Hashem. Salvation comes from God and he comes in the person of the son of God, the savior of people. He comes in the form of Jesus to crush the enemy and to set us free. And Jesus himself said, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. Today's message is about freedom. As we look at the story of the events that transpire following Passover and into the Exodus, we're going to see how they point also to the action of Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the grave but I also want to invite you to see how they point to you. That these stories, which happened many years apart, 1,500 years probably, between the time of the exodus of Israel to the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, another 2,000 years until the time of you and I today. But all of that time is the blink of an eye to the Lord. And in comparison to eternity, it's no time at all. And so all that we will discuss today is about you, about what chains and binds you, 
and about how the Lord wants to set you and me free. Now, if that's something that we want, and it is a question, because as you'll see, even in the story today, a real story about real events that really occurred in history, you'll see that sometimes people don't want to be free. Why would anyone not want to be free? Because sometimes the pathway to freedom is perilous. And sometimes, in fact, probably all times, it requires patience. You may feel a ripple of recognition go around the room. If you're a guest to PCF, the Lord has spoken to us by his word and by his spirit to say that 2022 would be a year of patience. Now, you might not be part of the regular flock, but you might be able to say, yeah, that's what it feels like to me. It's a year that requires patience. And maybe most of us in our flesh and in the world would say, I don't like being patient. I'm ready to be done with it. But actually, patience is an extraordinary gift because it is through patience and that divine virtue of patience that the people of God can prevail. Patience is a precursor to victory. Patience is a prerequisite of freedom. And it isn't something that comes naturally or easily to any of us. So the scripture says, for instance, as in the book of James, if you lack something, ask God for it. And God gives liberally and he gives to everyone. You might not even be sure this morning that there's a God to hear you. Why not ask? If you ask for patience from the God that you aren't sure is there, and one of two things happens, then it'll be a sign to you that not only is he there, but that he hears and he cares. One is that he might just give you patience. The other is that it'll give you situations that are so trying of your patience that you'll be desperate for him. And that's why you see sometimes we might not want to be free because you think of those two, you don't want the second, do you? We talked on Friday night, Good Friday, about the feast that no one wants. If you're interested in that message, you can go back and hear the recording. If you haven't heard any of the prior messages in this series, you won't be left out because it is enough for you to hear what is shared today. But the point of it is this. Sometimes we know that asking for the thing that God wants in our life is going to bring us face to face with something that we don't want to face. But I want to say to you, on the other side of that sea is freedom and something more. Not just freedom for you, but purpose and a promise that could flow through you into this world and to people around you and make your life a legacy that overcomes love that is stronger than death. In the name of Jesus, amen. As the sky grew dark and the night descended, he came and stood at the shoreline. And even in that gloaming, even in the dark, with the clouds gathering and a bracing wind kicking up off of the waters, he could see the height of the waves. He could see the mass of the water and the expanse across it. And in his mind, he thought, why? Why did you bring us this way? Did you bring us this way? Did I hear you wrong? Are you tricking me? Have you abandoned me? Did I miss what you said? And he heard a cry go up from all the people amassed behind him, 
not just men strong and ready for battle, but women with young children and little infants and cattle and old people, some of them ill and failing, desperate to walk just another mile. And here they are at the edge of a sea that cannot be crossed. Even if they had the boats to cross it, they couldn't cross in time. And they have no boats. And behind them an army. And that army is equipped with all the highest technology of the age, with chariots and charioteers and horses, with all the brass instruments of brutality, the amassed weaponry of the greatest superpower on the face of the earth. And that is what's behind them, bearing down on them. Yes, the ruler had said, we'll give you your freedom. Yes, you can establish your own nation. But then, as such rulers are wont to do, he changed his mind and said, in fact, you belong to me, and I will use force to grab you back. Sound familiar? Such despots have always been, and shall always be, until one ruler comes who puts such rulership under his foot. But these, these that he was leading, as he stood there on the shore, as he looked at the impassable pathway in front of him, all these that he was leading, what kind of army are they? They were shepherds. They didn't have weapons. They had shepherd sticks. Where were their shields? Where were their chariots? Where were their wheels? Where was their God? Their God was there. And even amongst the clouds, there was one like a pillar that began to glow as with fire. Lightning in the cloud, power in that place, something sparking in the darkness. God said, let there be light, let there be protection, let there be deliverance. And the cloud moved even as the Lord spoke and said, Moses, don't be afraid and tell the people, don't be afraid, stand and stand your ground. I will open up the waters in front of you and you will pass through them as miraculously and surely away into life as I passed over you when I brought death upon those who are your enemies because they have become my enemies and because they oppose me, I will strengthen them in their opposition and I will bring the wind and the waves against them so that they will go down to their demise as you come up into your freedom. And so in his heart, before it had even happened, he had hope because he had faith and he determined to believe it. Later, another day, another group of people huddling at the foot of a tree, as it were, a tree that was crying out, a tree that was bleeding, although not the tree but the man that was on it, and not just a tree, but a cross. And even the word of the Lord, as it said, anyone who hangs on a tree, like a convict, like a criminal, is cursed. So here was the one hanging on this tree, hanging on this cross, and they had thought this one was the anointed one. They had thought this was the Savior. And now, here, all their hopes were being dashed because in front of them, the very one that they thought was the source of life and the hope of life, the life was draining out of him, blood pouring down out of him, blood and water mingled even as his side was pierced 
by the spear of the soldier of Rome to ensure that he was dead. And before he breathed his last, he cried out. And even he was saying, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hiloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Quoting the scripture, but actually fulfilling it. Speaking that very sense that you and I have felt in the days when we stood at the impassable waters, when we were surrounded by the unbeatable foes, when we were up against a death that we couldn't comprehend and that we couldn't conquer. And we say, God, where are you? But what they didn't know is that even as he died and the whole land was covered in darkness for three hours, so while he was covered in the earth for three days, there would be another cry from God, a shout that would roll back the stone, that would open the tomb, and there would come forth the author of life, holding freedom in his hands and giving it like gifts to all that would receive. Two stories, one message. No matter what you are facing, God may lead you to a place you don't understand, and that doesn't mean that he has forsaken you. But it also is understandable if you feel that way. Even the Son of God himself cried out in compassionate empathy with you and I. And not only just empathy, but he experienced the kind of desolation that you and I only know a little of. But if you add up all the aggregate of what you and I and billions of others have experienced, it still doesn't amass to the sum total of what Jesus Christ experienced on the cross. And he did it for a reason. He did it for a purpose. He did it for a person. And that person is you, whoever you are, because he did it for all of us. And he did it to set us free. The Exodus story is a real event about the liberation of the children of Israel, but it also provides for us a template so that we can better understand what God has been doing all along, which is coming against those forces and foes that oppose his truth, that oppose his light, that oppose his love, and, and revealing them for what they are and dealing with them according to who he is. A week ago on our Palm Sunday, we looked at the 10 plagues that the Lord brought against Egypt. We talked about the need for patience in those plagues, and yet they are not called plagues per se in the scripture, at least not always. They are referred to as wonders, miracles, strange amalgamation of, and it's important that you and I not try and rip them apart because we can only properly understand them when they are seen in a kind of balance together. Do you know that the gospel writers uh, give something between 25 to 50% of their content to the events that transpired in the last week of Jesus' life? That's how important all of those days and hours leading up to his death and resurrection are. And so likewise, the importance of the wonders, the miracles that the Lord did in Egypt to reveal to the Egyptians and to the Jewish people that these gods that the Egyptians were worshiping, these false idols that were in charge of various elements of their society, of the Nile and of, uh, of the cattle and of the atmosphere and the 
agriculture and the ecology and the physical health and, and, and even the birth of life, all of those things were really under the hand of God. And he so demonstrated that that when he came to the final, the tenth wonder, which is the Passover, he made it all the more clear to his people that he makes a distinction. You remember we talked about that last week. And on Good Friday, we looked at that, the Passover, where a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb, one year old, a yearling, was sacrificed for each family, for each household, and the blood of the lamb was placed on the door as a sign, the sign of the blood. As they took the hyssop branch, you see the the symbols coming together, the tree that's bleeding, the lamb that was sacrificed, the offering to the Lord. That blood is washed and sprinkled on the door so that a very cross in crimson is signaled on the door. And the Lord who comes to judge the land, the Lord is not coming with the intent to kill The Lord is coming to reveal what has been planted, to bring to harvest and fruition what has been sown, to bring to the scales everything that people themselves have brought. And so throughout Egypt, where there is no devotion to God, where there is no devotion to righteousness, where there is no compassion for human life, where the firstborn of all of the Hebrew slaves were being pushed into the waters and drowned because Pharaoh wanted to keep the slave populace from outnumbering them, where that kind of mentality was rooted in the people and the society, it is a mentality that brings death. And so God said, this is what you've sown and this is what you shall reap. But where the Lord saw the sign of the blood, he saw covenant. He saw that there was a covering And the covering came from him, and the covering was life. And so the firstborn, not only of highborn, but lowborn, even of the animals in Egypt, put to death. But the lamb that was slain, whose blood gave covering, that lamb was the means by which the Passover occurred. Without the Passover, there's no exodus. And so for you and I, without the blood of the lamb, Who or what can cover us? We each have sown unrighteousness in our own lives, haven't we? And so there is a covering for us that can bring protection and deliverance and freedom. Freedom Day, that's what the Exodus is. That's what Moses is standing on the cusp of when he's standing in the dark at the waters, as I described at the beginning of the message. It seems like he's standing at the end. It looks like he's looking at his grave, but actually he's looking at the road to freedom. He's about to see one of the greatest miracles that has ever occurred on the face of the earth. And those people that are huddled around the feet of Jesus on the cross, they think that they are seeing the end, the end of their hope, the end of their purpose, maybe even the end of their lives. But really what they are looking on is the beginning of life. They're looking at the road to freedom. They don't yet see that the grave opens up to something bigger. Many of you are aware that in my own family there's been a death this week. My beloved father passed away. He was elderly, he had been ailing, but it doesn't change the fact that death is a devastating thing to face. 
And there is perhaps nothing more grievous to our hearts and our lives than the loss of someone that we love. And when we come face to face with that, and we all come face to face with it, and not just with others that we love, but guess who else is going to die? We all will die. You remember that verse from the scripture that we saw on Friday night? Spoiler alert, you're going to die. You're going to. Well, some might say, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You're going to have a change that you don't expect. It's going to be beyond what you can understand. It's going to look like a grave, but it's really a road to freedom if you're under the blood. And if you're not, you're already dead. That may seem harsh, but if you have not a relationship of life with the Lord, then what kind of life is it that you can lead? And how long can it last? So when you and I face those things that threaten to wipe out our hope and to extinguish our patience, and even if possible to extinguish our faith, remember the story of Moses and the children of Israel. Remember what the Lord did for them. And as you remember it, celebrate it. That's why we're here today. We are here to celebrate what God did for his people. We are here to celebrate what God does for us. And I want to ask you in this passage, as we look at chapter 13, to consider what has God done for you? Look at how he has helped others and consider, has he been at work in your life? Now, you might have a disposition that says, I don't think so. I don't even know that God's there. I don't know if God cares about me. You may feel like God doesn't like you. You're wrong. You're wrong. There are people out there who really do believe God doesn't like them. Maybe you've never even put it into words because you think he might not like you saying that. But right now, as I say it, you hear it and you think, that's the way I feel. Well, that's not the way he feels. But he doesn't like some of what you do. Isn't that funny? Some of us would rather think that God doesn't like us than think that he doesn't like what we do. You know why? Well, you can't change who you are, but you can change what you do. So it's easy to think God just doesn't like me. But to think God doesn't like what I do, well, that might make us accountable. God loves you. He doesn't just like you, but he does like you. He made you. And he made you for a purpose. And when you and I engage in things that run contrary to our purpose, that's called enslavement. And God doesn't like slavery. God believes in freedom. What the Lord did for us is set us free. And you can see it in what he did for Israel. Here is the Lord speaking to Moses at this moment that I have described when they are coming to face this passage through a treacherous uh, uh, direction that only God would have chosen. And so the Lord says to Moses, dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. This is a holdover from the Passover sequence that we saw together if you were with me in the study in Exodus chapter 12 on Friday. And so the Lord is saying, this is not just a one-off event. You're going to commemorate it and acknowledge it. There will be a feast festival every year at this time. And every time there is life born in your home, in your stables, the first one to open the womb is to be dedicated to me. They belong to me. Why? It's God's way of saying, I saved you because I made you and I'm the source of life. Now, the animals are to be sacrificed, but the human children are to be consecrated. 
That is, a sacrifice is to be made for them on their behalf. It isn't God coming, as he said to Abraham, and saying, sacrifice your son to me, which was a test, by the way. God never intended that that would be brought to pass. He was testing the heart of Abraham. And so here, he's testing the heart of his children and saying, will you do this? Consecrate your firstborn to me. And remember, be pure, and I want you to be consecrated. He refuses. He, who of, uh, of the Jewish people, his children were killed. And so there is no sacrifice that can save Pharaoh because Pharaoh will make no sacrifice to God. But among the people of Israel, there is a ceremony and a covenant, and it is a reminder of the power of God. Bread without yeast is a symbol of life without sin, and it's only possible in the Lord. It's only possible under the blood, but with the bread of God and the blood of the Savior, there can be life without end. Jesus says later, you eat bread and your fathers ate bread. They ate manna in the wilderness, but they died. But I'm the bread of heaven that if you eat of me, you'll never die. It's not that you'll never face the grave. It's that the grave won't be able to hold you down. When Pharaoh let the people go, God took them, not on the desert road that was easier because it was shorter, because that way they would have to face the Philistines. Now listen, they're being followed by an army that's far more intimidating than the Philistines. So why is it that God would say, I don't want you to face the Philistines? They might say, we'd rather face the Philistines than Pharaoh. But God says, if you face an army in front of you, you might just run back behind you. Instead, I'm going to lead you to the water, the water route, so that you can't escape. There will only be one way to go, only forward. And the only way that you can go forward is that I will do a miracle. God brings them to a place where only a miracle will do it. Has God ever brought you to such a point? And maybe you feel desperate or even upset with God. Why did you bring me here? Maybe it's God saying, because I want to do a miracle. And I want to show you who I am. It does say that they came ready for battle. They didn't have the armaments of battle. It means that they came ready to stand and having done all, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, to stand. And they brought with them Joseph, the body of the family of the patriarch. They had the bones of Joseph with them because Joseph had said generations before, when I die, bring my body home. God will come to your aid and he will deliver you. Take my body with you. Now the Lord is there with them as well and goes before them. He is that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire at night. In other words, visible in the best way for the hour in which he is needed. He is an insulating, protective cloud over them to protect them from the vision of their enemy, to protect them from the heat of the day, to guide them in the brightness of the sky. He's a pillar of fire at night, seen from miles around in the dark and as a wall to ward off the enemy. So, what did the Lord do for them? He consecrated and redeemed them, purified them, and promised them land and life. He brought them through a strange route that brought them up against a watery wall, and then he prepared them for a miracle. And he brought them as one, one body, one family, not forgetting the past, not leaving anyone behind, but moving forward in faith, following the pillar of God. And what has the Lord done for me? 
I'll just speak to you as Courtney, but maybe it applies to you too. And if you think it doesn't, this is where you can begin to consider how has God protected you in your life? Where were the times when you could have been hit by that car? You could have drowned in that pool. Where are the times when you felt like you couldn't go on and somehow God brought a bright light? God brought a shoulder of a friend to cry on. What were the times when you thought that you couldn't pay that bill or you couldn't get out of that problem and God opened up a door, a path, protected you, purchased you, says, you're mine, I've called you by name. You can go through deep water, rivers of difficulty, even through the fires. You won't drown, you won't be burned. In fact, I promise you a future and a hope, as the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah to purify you. Sometimes it's the fire he walks us through that purifies us. And sometimes it's the trials he takes us through that bring us to the teachings of his miracles and the demonstration of his power. And it's in him that we're bound together. Why are you here this morning? You're part of a family. Welcome to the body of Christ. Welcome to the family of God. Now, look to the people to your right and to your left and love them, and be patient with them, and pray for them, and be kind to them, because we are bonded in family. We are bound by faith, and we are led by God. Is it dark in your life right now? The Lord will be a light to you. Are you trying to bear up under the unbearable heat of some scorching oppression that's coming against you, some scorching depression that's, that's trying to, to dry you out, let the Lord be that cover of cloud, that, that Shekinah glory of his presence. Friends, all of these things are Jesus. Jesus is the son whose blood has redeemed us. Jesus is the bread of heaven, free of sin, without any little bit of yeast, to rise and puff up with pride, but instead in perfect humility, in perfect righteousness, he saves us. Jesus is the one who leads us to the cross. We mentioned how in Galatians, Paul said it was by his blood that Jesus purchased us. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. If you eat, you'll have eternal life. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, you have to follow me to the cross. You have to follow me to the place where there's no other way except God. Jesus is the one who puts us into his body and brings us home, a place prepared for you. He calls us brothers and sisters. He calls us children of God. He came to his own, John says in chapter 1, but his own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And Jesus says in chapter 14 of John, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, in our Father's house, there are many rooms. And if I go and do that, then I will come back so that I can bring you where I am. Ephesians 4.4 says that there's one body, one spirit, one hope of calling. And Jesus is our guiding light and our sheltering guide. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot extinguish it. And that is the one light that gives light to all people coming into the world. That's what the Lord did for you, whether you know it or not. But there's more. In Exodus 14, these people are like us. 
They can see the marvelous works of God. They can conceive of how God has helped them. They cannot conceive of how he's done these miracles and wonders, but they cannot deny that he has. And yet, when they face the next hardship, when they come up against the next trial, well, it's just like me. All of, again, all of a sudden, it's, it's all over again saying, I can't believe you brought me here. Why, why have you forsaken me? What can this possibly do? What good can come of this? In chapter 14, the Lord is going to go even further in pressing his people to the point of faith. He says to Moses, order the Israelites to turn back and camp along the shore. In other words, they're trying to find a path, a route. And God says, stop, go back, camp for the night. Then Pharaoh is going to think they're confused. And Pharaoh may be right, but God isn't confused. And then I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Do you remember from last week, the word there in Hebrew for harden is strengthen. See, that's who the Lord is. That's what he does. It's just that Pharaoh has set his heart towards evil, and God is one who strengthens people. And so if you have set yourself to be a person of evil, then God's strengthening power in your presence is one that can only double down on your obstinance. It isn't God's fault that Pharaoh is hard-hearted. And Pharaoh is going to have his way, but it cannot contradict God's will. What God has determined is, you are free to do what you will do, but I am that I am. And so, if you wish to go that way, more power to you, but I will show you that whatever way you go, my way will out. And so Pharaoh will chase after you, says the Lord, and I've planned this because it's how I'm going to rout him. It's how I'm going to beat him. Don't you know that Satan was desiring to crucify Christ on the cross? Isn't that why there was the betrayal of Judas who gave himself over to the enemy? And Jesus said to him, what you must do, go and do it quickly. He urged him into it, not because it was Jesus's choice, but because Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him about a human heart, and he saw what was in Judas's heart. And when there's darkness in the heart, as Jesus said, then, oh, how dark are you? What light can shine on you? But the enemy who thought he was achieving a victory by putting Jesus shamefully on that tree of curse was in fact himself put to shame. And Jesus made a public spectacle, the scripture says, of the enemies of God, which is exactly what God did to Pharaoh and his army. And so the Israelites follow what God has said and they camp on the shore, but they are saying, why, why are we here? Meanwhile, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are saying, we must have been crazy to let our slaves go. We're going to get them back. And the children of Israel are saying, that's fine. We'd rather be slaves. Better to be a living slave than a dead corpse. I'd rather be a slave in Egypt, they say, than free at the bottom of the sea. But they don't know what they're saying because they don't know what God's doing. And so, indeed, Pharaoh chases after the uh, people of Israel with all of his might and power and forces. And as they are bearing down on them, that is when the people begin to panic. But the Lord says, just stay calm. Will you hear this from Jesus? He's alive today, you know. He's talking to you. And he's saying, stay calm. You see those T-shirts. 
Stay calm. Don't panic. I'm here. I'm doing something. Trust me. Trust me. So I was driving home on uh, Wednesday morning very early from having come from the hospice where my father passed. I was praying and the streets were empty and it was dark. The incomprehensibility of the passing of one that you love so much and so central to your life. My life is here because of him and because of my mother. And you think, how, how do I process this? And I, I sensed the voice of the Lord. It's not an audible voice, but it was in my heart. Just trust the Lord. Just trust. And I felt enveloped by the love of God and the comfort of God, and the truth of God. And I trust it, because he gives you that grace to trust. <laughs> but sometimes we do what the Israelites do. We cry out, and a great cry rises up from them like a great cry had risen from the Egyptians on Passover. And the Lord, sometimes the Lord wants to smack us around just a little bit. It's not because he doesn't like you. The word says he disciplines those whom he loves. A good father disciplines their child. And so the Lord speaks to Moses and says, why are you crying to me? Just tell the people to get moving. Now it's time to go. Follow in the direction. And listen to what he says. As if we could just do this. Pick up your staff, raise your hand over the sea, divide the water so that the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. Okay, got it. And how do I do that? I missed the training. Just do it. Just trust the Lord. Do you remember the first miracle of Jesus at the wedding in Cana? Turning water into wine. And what was it that Mary, his mother, said to the servants? Do whatever he tells you to do. So Moses goes to the edge of the water. Would you want to be him with all those people behind you and all that army bearing down? And here you are just with faith and the staff for sheep. And you raise your hand over the water and think, God, I hope this works. And it does, because God is. And he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And in doing so, Moses has more faith. And the people of Israel have more faith. And the people of Egypt see that God is God. I've mentioned many times before that in my estimation, this is a Christophany. The pre-incarnate Christ, as an angel of light, goes to the rear of the camp from the... From the vanguard, he becomes a back. And as the cloud settles there, it provides covering. And then as darkness comes, it begins igniting, lighting up like lightning in the cloud. And there is no way that that great army with all their technology of Egypt for the Bronze Age can possibly penetrate this awesome crowd, this, this cloud of light and fire and smoke. Now, you might think this is an artist's rendering, but it's not. It's an actual photo from nature. This is a volcano in Iceland. I don't know whether the glory cloud of God looked like this. I don't know whether the pillar looked like this. But I want to remind you that as fantastic as such things sound in their description, they are impossible only to the degree that we believe that God cannot do anything. But all things are possible with God. And there are many things in our world that are mighty to see. 
And if this seems mighty to you and I, imagine standing at the foot of that volcano watching this, then imagine being the army of Egypt and seeing the Lord and seeing the wind that now strikes up over the water and divides the water, a pathway through the sea so that they can walk through on dry ground with the waves actually held up by the wind. A miraculous passage, a beautiful visage, and also a brilliant trap. Because the Egyptians, hardened of heart and determined to kill, so bent on death that they are going straight into their own. You see, that's all God is doing is just opening up a doorway to what they want. They want to kill. They are dedicated to death. And so death shall have them. And as they go in, they go into chaos. And the Lord is at work twisting off their chariot wheels so that it is impossible for them to even get across the dry ground. And then the wind that at once had made the ground dry turns in the other direction and begins to bring the waters toppling down. And they are washed into the sea, rushed into the depth, the heart of the sea, and drown. They cannot escape. They are swept out to death. And not a single one survives. But among the Israelites, not a single one is lost. You see, God is the God of life and death. It might seem to us uncomfortable to think of God presiding over death. But if you do not preside over death, you cannot rightly call yourself a judge of life or a source or author. You may not feel comfortable with God holding the keys of life and death in his hands, but he does. And actually, I wouldn't be comfortable with anyone else holding them because he is the righteous judge who knows the purpose of both life and death. And as ghastly as death is, it does produce some gifts. Death tends to give us a perspective that is far more appreciative of the preciousness of life. The Israelites see the bodies of their enemies washing up on the seashore, and they realize we were so afraid but God already had the victory secured. They put their faith in the Lord. And so, where is Jesus in this story? There is a call that strengthens, and if someone is determined to go against the way of God, you could say it hardens, but there is also a call that beckons, and that is the call from Jesus. Jesus who says, Come to me, even all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Follow me, and I will show you the pathway of life. Trust in me, and I will by no means forsake you. Hold on to your life, grip on to your life, and you'll lose it. But let go of your life and give it over to me, and you'll find it. Jesus once said, after healing a blind man and being accused of having done so demonically, he said to the religious leaders who were opposed to him, you say that you can see. And their eyes worked, but they were spiritually blind. And so Jesus said to them, because you say you can see, you are in fact blind. But if you would acknowledge your blindness, then I would allow you to see. In the book of Revelation, he speaks similarly to his own people. And he says, you have not clear vision, but if you come to me, I'll give you the salve. I'll give you the ointment. I'll heal your vision. But if you turn away from me, you turn away from the light. He's like that cloud 
that's shining in one direction and protecting in the other. And it's up to us to determine on what side of God do you want to be? God's for you, not against you. But if you and I are against God, then God respects our will. One thing God is not is a dictator. Jesus is the Lord who waters and dries. In the book of James, we are told about Elijah, the prophet, who was called by God to pray for a drought because the nation was wicked and had to be brought to bear in face-to-face confrontation of its wickedness. But later, the Lord wanted to relent and to show his mercy, and he said to Elijah, pray for rain, and the rain came. In other words, God is the one who uses every instance of life to bring about his will. Paul writes about it this way in Romans 8. God will work together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You see, Jesus knows from death because he has himself died. Jesus is the only person in this room that I know of. You may have an amazing experience that I've got to hear about. But as far as I know, he's the only person who spent three days dead in a grave and is alive in the room. And you may say, well, I don't see him in the room. His spirit is in the room. And if you will attend to his spirit, his spirit is attending to you. But I want to tell you, his flesh and blood is in the room. Why? Because the body has been brought with us. This is the body of Christ. You If you are a follower of Jesus, this is the body of Christ. You who dine at this feast, this is the body and blood of the Lord. I'm going to ask if those who are serving communion would begin to distribute. All are welcome to participate. As I conclude the message, I want to prepare you with the elements of the table. Whoever you are, whatever your background, we invite you to reverently, if you will, partake of this. It's not an obligation, it's an invitation. Even you at home, you may have some elements that you can bring now, a piece of bread or cracker, juice or wine, that you can drink of, even if it's water and a Pop-Tart. Pray over it. And if you have nothing, then just pray over your time now with the Lord as we participate in this together. But I want you to know that all are welcome, but we ask that you would participate in it reverently. Jesus is the one who says in the book of Revelation, as he appears to his follower John, after his death and resurrection, even after the ascension to the Father, he says, behold, I am the one who was alive, the one that was born a little baby in Bethlehem and died. I am the one that died on the cross, says Jesus. And behold, I am alive forevermore. See, he's been through it all. And he's been through it for you and I. And in doing so, he is our savior. And salvation means healing. When Jesus healed people in the scriptures, when his miracles came, his miracles were were not plagues, but which counteracted plagues. When he healed people of leprosy and blindness and deafness and muteness and madness of the issue of blood, even of death, resurrecting those who had gone to the grave too soon. Every time in the Greek scriptures, it indicates the very same word for salvation and healing and liberation. Freedom, healing, and salvation are all the same. The Lord who heals, heals in ways that are mysterious to us, his wonders to behold. 
In chapter 15 of Exodus, the people of Israel are free. They've come through the waters. They're in the wilderness. They're on their way, and they are rejoicing. The very first celebration of Exodus occurs on the far side of the Amsaf, of the Sea of Reeds, of the Red Sea. And there is a song called the Song of the Sea that, that recognizes that this battle that they didn't even fight in and that they were so afraid of is actually blessed. By the way, your bulletin says blessed bottles. That's a typo. But if you have bottles that you want to bless, go for it. But it's battles. Maybe sometimes your battle is the bottle. Oh. Maybe sometimes you turn to the bottle when you have a battle. Turn to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let the Lord be on your side. Read Exodus 15 this week. It's an exquisite piece of archaic Hebrew poetry, ripe with imagery, powerful and beautiful. The men with Moses sing their song. The women with his sister Miriam sing their response and dance their dance. And there's joy, just like the kind of joy we're about to have in a few minutes, feasting like we shall do. But it's because they faced the battle with faith and were willing to patiently prevail in the Lord. But the very next step is into bitter waters. They come to a place called bitterness, Mara. For those of you who were with me in the study of the book of Ruth recently, you'll remember that her mother-in-law, Naomi, which means delightful, said, call me Mara, call me bitter, because I don't like what God's done and what God's allowed in my life. And the people of Israel, once again, they come to these bitter waters. There have been three days, three days, no water. And they begin to complain once again. What are we going to drink? Why didn't you just let us die? And the Lord says, there's a tree. Throw the tree, the branch, into the water. And the branch will make it sweet. Jesus is a Nazarite, it means branch. Because out of the root of Jesse, of the line of David, there would come a branch. And the very tree that looked like a curse was a blessing because the one who hung on the tree, who knew no sin, took the curse of sin for us so that we could know the righteousness of God, so that our bitter hearts and our bitter lives could be sweetened by his better blood and be brought into better days. The very last thing in the story, the very last part of Exodus 15 is that they come to the oasis of Elam and a place of 70 palms. It is an absolute paradise, a garden of God's grace. And the Lord says to them, after all he's done, after all he's shown, trust me, trust and obey. And then I will be the God who heals you. Blessed battles, bitter waters, and better days are again the story of Jesus Christ for us. The Lord who doesn't take us away from our troubles, but shows us the way through them, who strengthens us to face them with faith, and who also fights for us to deliver us from evil. The one who on the cross gave his body to heal ours. 
Take your bread and hold it in front of you. Have you ever seen Jesus? You're looking at him now. You say, well, this is just a symbol. It's a symbol, but it's not just a symbol. It's also a sacrament. It's a physical token about an inner truth. So take it into you and let him into you. And wherever there's brokenness and wherever there's battle and wherever there's darkness and wherever there's bondage, let him break you free because that's what he was broken for so that you and I could be made whole. Lord, we... And let him consciousness and free you. I pray a prayer. If you'd be willing to repeat it after me, do so. It's a prayer of repentance. I promise you, I won't make you say something that would offend your sensibilities. And if you can't pray it earnestly, I respect if you don't pray it at all. But I hope, I invite you to pray it with me. Lord God, I believe you are there. And I want to know you more. I know you are good. And there is no evil in you. Forgive me for doubting you. Forgive me for running from you. Forgive me if I have resented you. I know, Lord, that I have sins. That I've done wrong things. That I've hurt others. And I know that I've been hurt. And there are sins of others that have damaged me. And wherever in my life there are things controlling me that I should control or things that don't belong in me, I pray you'd set me free by your power and fill me with your spirit. I receive this blood as of the Savior, and I put my trust into him. In the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs> Whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. Rejoice! He is risen! Well, it's time to party. We're gonna celebrate. I wanna give you some instruction. We are gonna congregate on the patio area. I don't know if there's more uh, directions that need to be given. There's various booths where there's various food and fun and there's gonna be a bit of program. So let's just say a prayer over our meal. Lord, we thank you that you have already fed us from your body and blood. Now we ask, Lord, that you would anoint the fine food that's been prepared for us, bless those who are the hands that have made and are serving it. Bless our time of fellowship and gathering. And I pray, Lord, in benediction over this blessed gathering, these here present and any virtually, that you, Lord, would go with them. You'd go before them as the bright cloud at night, shining the light, parting the waves, making a path, and as the insulating cloud of day that brings covering and comfort and protection, and as the saving God, the God of life, the God of hope, in the name of Jesus Christ, may all be blessed and may all rejoice. Amen.